when Ananias was, was told to go to go a certain house in Damascus to pray for Saul, who had just become a Christian, go to him, do not be frightened because of his history of persecuting the Christians. He is my chosen instrument to take the gospel to the Gentiles. A chosen race is completely consistent with God's character. So we're not dealing with a God who is distant. And we are different because we believe in a God who makes choices and who acts. You may hear from time to time of award ceremonies at universities where a celebrity is awarded an honorary degree. And that celebrity is chosen because he or she is seen to be a, a jolly good person and has achieved something in a particular field. But they haven't actually studied at that university. They may not even have any connection with the, the city. But it's felt that it's a good idea to give that person an honorary degree and to be seen doing it because it's largely for show. It's good publicity for the university. But here we're not dealing with an arbitrary choice. We're not receiving empty decorations. There is purpose in being chosen. Firstly, we're chosen for according to God's foreknowledge. It says at the beginning of, uh, of Peter, in the previous chapter, we're chosen according to God's foreknowledge. And in Ephesians, even chosen before the world began, before the foundation of the world. Now, if, like me, you struggle with one or two terms in the, the, these verses, this is probably one of them, but being a chosen race. We're chosen not according to birth, but by rebirth, by being born again. The phrase chosen race may cause discomfort or even alarm, may have connotations of, being of the master race, of the Nazis, this being Holocaust Memorial Day, for instance, of racism and, and privilege. But it's nothing whatsoever to do with a natural race, but with being born again into a, a new race with one father, that is God. And he's chosen us for work. We're not chosen just to have a nice little decoration that God has a special favor on us and we have a little badge. We have work to do. In Colossians it says, as God's chosen people, that phrase again, put on a heart of compassion, love, kindness, and be active being rich in good works. Matthew also echoes that when Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount refers to us as the salt of the earth that preserves the world from decay and has a positive influence on those around us. And even when the Bible is not explicit in talking about being chosen, it's quite clear that God is active behind the scenes making choices. Take, for example, a book like Esther. Now, Esther is unique think unique or very rare in the Bible in that there is no reference whatsoever to God. There's no, it doesn't say that God guided Esther or revealed some, something to Esther, but it is very clear that he's working behind the scenes. This is the story of a Jewish refugee who from obscurity becomes queen of, of Persia, and she has a real dilemma in that she has a position of real power Yet her people, the Jewish people, are threatened with being wiped out of a massive pogrom. And her relative, Mordecai, advises her, well, perhaps you have been raised to this high position for such a time as this. A very strong hint that it was God who's, who's working away. God is for us. 
Not only has he chosen us for a specific purpose, for, for specific things to work out, he is for us and not against us. In Luke, we read about the righteous who cry out to God day and night, his chosen ones, God will bring vindication for them. Romans 8.33 says, who will bring a charge against God's elect? There's no condemnation for those who belong to him. So we are, are chosen according to God's purposes. When we say for, by his foreknowledge, it's only because God knows in advance who's, who are going to turn to him. It's not anything predetermined by him. Secondly, a royal priesthood. Now, if you are scratching your head at that statement, you would be in good company because the original Jewish audience would have been scratching their heads at that statement. Throughout the Old Testament, priests were separate from the rest of the community. When the promised land was divided up amongst the tribes of Israel, every tribe was assigned a certain territory with the exception of the tribe of Levi. And that was because the tribe of Levi was the, the tribe of priests, the, the priestly tribe. They had no land assigned to them. They had a specific function. Basically, the priest has two functions. One is to pray to God, to communicate with God, asking forgiveness for the sins of the, of the people, primarily, and communicating his will. It doesn't, doesn't mean that others couldn't pray and others didn't have any revelation from God, but that's the primary voice through which God spoke. And the priest also had an important role in anointing a ruler, such as a king. And throughout the Old Testament, the monarchy and the priesthood were separate. And even the most powerful king on the face of the earth had to respect that there was a, a holiness, a, a specific, holy, set-apart role for the priesthood, and there were certain lines which he must not cross. Sadly, that did happen on, on occasion. King Saul had a great start to his reign, was genuinely, I believe, used of God, not just in military victory, but in establishing a, a stable kingdom. But in a moment of impatience, he couldn't wait for the, the right person to arrive who was qualified to, to, to do this action, and he offered burnt offering, which was there for, only for the priest to do. Samuel then had to tell him, you've acted very foolishly. Your kingdom will not last. And he didn't. And there's another incident of Uzziah, king of Judah, who was actually a very godly king. He reigned for 52 years, introduced lots of tremendous reforms, and would count as one of the best kings of the, of the, the day. Yet he grew proud in his later years, and despite desperate attempts by the priests to prevent him from doing that, he burnt incense in the temple. That was, again, something only for the priests to, to do. Immediately, a, a leprous growth came over his face, and he was a leper until the day he died. Incidentally, in, the, in Isaiah chapter 6, a very unusual way of starting a chapter, very often you'll see in the Old Testament in reference to the first year of king such and such or the 15th year of king whatever. 
This one refers to the, the year that, Uzi that King Uzziah died. To my knowledge, that's unique, certainly very rare. Which is a, perhaps a sobering reminder of how that, that, that king met, met a, a very un unpleasant end. And that was the chapter where, used, where Isaiah was, was called um, into to ministry. There is, however, an indication of what's to come later on in Exodus, where God says, you shall be, that's Israel, a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words that you shall speak, you, Moses, shall speak to the sons of Israel. There's an indication there that there is to be a separation. The separation of monarchy and priesthood was not meant to be permanent. That there was to be a new covenant, a new arrangement. Priests came from the line of Levi, with one exception. And it's a very unusual and mysterious exception, which happens in Genesis, where Abraham is met after a military victory by a chap called Melchizedek who is described as king, but also priest of God Most High. And Melchizedek blesses a Abraham, and he's uh, unusual because he is not from the line of Levi. We don't know who Melchizedek's parents were, or his children, if there were any. He's breaking with what was to be the tradition of the line of Levi, uh, the, li well, the house of Levi and the, the line of Aaron being the high priests. Here God was overruling with Melchizedek with his sovereign choice and Jesus is described as one to come who is a high priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek, according to that new pattern by God's sovereign will. And Jesus is our great high priest. And as he is in us, we now have access to God. And he's making his appeal for us. So we are now priests. But we're not just priests. Because in Hebrews it says that we are crowned with glory and honor. Revelation says he has made us to be a kingdom, priests to God, to his God and Father. So in other words, we are royalty. You're members of his family by blood and by status. And whatever our views on monarchy as a system of government, it cannot be disputed that there is a clear authority of who has the right to govern. And as children of our Father, God, we are heirs and have that right. John's Gospel says that we have the right, he has given us the right to become children of God, which is quite a responsibility. There are two possible attitudes we can adopt when we have received such a tremendous privilege you can either say, I'm all right, Jack. That'll, that'll do very nicely, thank you. And just enjoy the, the badge. Or say, well, I've got everything. I now need to share. Thirdly, we are a holy nation. In the first week of this series, Steve introduced um, the idea of being different, using the Greek word hagios, meaning set apart, distinct. And you may feel... Well, I'm not there yet by a long chalk. Well, you'd be in good company. I read recently that a very good management technique is not to assign someone just the tasks that a worker definitely can do. And by saying, well, she can do that, she can do that, that fits with this job, that's going to be her role, because that's just the sure way to make your worker 
bored and ineffective. But if you put your worker in a, a situation where she's going to struggle just a little bit and grow into the job, that's where you'll be much more successful. When I first became a Christian, there was a poster, I think it may have been a t-shirt as well, which said, be patient, God's not finished with me yet. But as a holy nation, a nation is slightly different from a chosen race or a chosen people because we're talking here about legal status. If you are a citizen of the United Kingdom or any other nation, you, are n you do not necessarily share the same blood ties as the rest of the population. And in Israel, that included strangers and refugees, those who, had, who were not necessarily descended from any of the tribes of Israel, but, had, but were converted. They had embraced the God of Israel, or they'd, they'd come in through marriage. And there was a form of baptism in the Old Testament, baptism into the God of Israel. And all are included. And that applies today in the Church of Jesus Christ. Even if you think your route to becoming a Christian may be quite strange, quite unorthodox, maybe you think you've got a quite a shady past, that doesn't matter. We are all one in Christ doesn't matter how you became a Christian, you have legal status, part of that holy nation. And our allegiance is first of all to God. It's not to the United Kingdom, it's not to the nation you um, belong to or grew up in. And we are commanded to obey the law, to pray for those in, in government, to obey the law whenever we can, but we may on occasion have to disobey. First Christians had that challenge. There was those living in Rome was, were told, fine, you can have your Christ, you can worship Je your Jesus, as long as you worship the emperor as number one, and, and Jesus can be number two. Otherwise, we'll leave you alone. And many bravely said, no, we can't accept that. Jesus is our, our number one. And they paid with their lives, many of them. But we need to accept that we do not belong here. We are citizens, first of all, of, of heaven. We belong to, as a part of a holy nation, belonging to God. And we are aliens and strangers. That's the next verse of the passage we looked at at the beginning. We are aliens and strangers. And sometimes, in these tricky situations, God does provide a way out. Daniel in the lion's den, for example. He would not, would not worship foreign gods. He was thrown into the lion's den, but the Lord preserved him. Sometimes God does provide that way out, sometimes he doesn't. Our challenge is to obey whatever happens. To be a holy nation means that God's purposes prevail over our personal and even national wishes. We are set apart in three ways. In our ambitions, do we live for ourselves or do we live for God? in our actions, making sure that everything we do is, is for God's glory, presenting our bodies as a living sacrifice to God. Set apart in our affections, what Christians love and what the world loves is going to be different. The essence of sin is loving what God says to hate and hating what God says to love. When we love something else more than God, we exchange God for that thing, whatever it is which is quite a challenge. Fourthly, 
We're a people for God's own possession. A people belonging to God. If we own something, perhaps we need to think about which things we value most. And probably the most obvious question to ask is, how much did it cost? It may be in terms of time to try to find this precious object. We may, may have had a lot of looking by ourselves or by someone who, who gave it to us as a gift. It may have cost a lot of money. But if it was difficult to get hold of, if it is valuable or unusual or rare, or given by someone that, that loves us, whom, who's, whom we, we value, it's likely we're going to look after it. So our key question is, how much did it cost God to make us belong to him? How much did it cost him? Well, the answer is everything. For us to be his people, it required becoming a man, living amongst us, dying a horrific death on, on the cross, it required the blood of Christ. And it's made quite clear in the Bible that we are not our own. We do not belong to ourselves. We were bought with a price, the blood of Christ. And our response to that is not to do good deeds because it's a good thing to do. It's just out of sheer gratitude and love for what he's done for us. Titus describes it as being zealous for good deeds. So how do we respond to all that? Why are we this different people? Well, we've got this, this purpose again, to proclaim the excellencies of him who's called us out of darkness into his marvelous light. And I've got on the screen just a few aspects of being in darkness. Where we are, don't know God, we are in darkness. We don't know where we're going, there may be fear, insecurity, at least a measure of depression and heaviness and conjecture. You know that for some reason, that just really strikes me. I just see it incredibly sad that every now and again you see documentaries which try to sort of pick holes in the Christian faith and just go, go off on real meandering journeys of conjecture. I mean, one, for example, said in absurd attempts to, in inverted commas, shed light on the story of Jesus, suggested that Jesus was married. Well, if that was the case, who was his wife? And either there were children from this marriage, where were they? Pretty strong evidence for that. Or his wife was infertile. It was always a woman who got the blame. So that, so that, that would be the, the ex explanation. And there would be such shame attached to that 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 would be known. That's just one example of how absurd it is coming up with, with conjecture as a way out of the darkness. There's no need for it. And these are not exact opposites, but we can get rid of fear and have a clear vision. We were singing about it a minute ago. Give me vision to know what to do. We have security in God. Instead of depression, we have an assurance of God's love and no conjecture, confidence in following him because Jesus is the light of the world and in him there is no darkness whatsoever. 
Those are the, f the four aspects. And the result is that we are a people now, a genuine people. We have received mercy. And the accent is on the word receive. Mercy is available to everyone. We're just the fortunate ones who've received and have a responsibility. So what's our response? Three things, I would suggest. And they're not, it's not rocket science, it's not terribly new. And I know I'm going to use some corny alliteration, which may help you. You may make, it make up your own. But just three things we perhaps can concentrate on as a result of these uh, four aspects of being part of the people of God. One, cultivate community. Make use of every opportunity to get to know our brothers and sisters in Christ. It could be over coffee, it could be over meals, it could be just developing relationships as whenever we can, through small groups, whatever situation. Secondly, invest in intercession. I'm starting to struggle with these verbs now, that they're not the so much obvious ones, but basically praying for people. The more we pray for people, praying for people to become Christians, praying for people to become more effective as, as Christians, the more we do that, naturally we will want to be effective as a bridge, as a form performing that priestly function of communicating the word of God to them, as well as praying for them. And the last one I, I'm really struggling on to find, find a good verb, but the importance is to, be, to have high visibility, to be seen in the community wherever we are. I'm sure you were aware of the yellow vest protest in France just before Christmas. Very obvious way in which you can recognize to which group someone be belongs. It could, could not be more visible. And we need to be visible, not necessarily wearing particularly striking clothes, but because of our conduct, because of our approach, because of our willingness to communicate the word of God and to, to share God's love in the community. So perhaps the final one would be harness high visibility. Harnessing thing, that requires a little bit of effort to get the harness in place. And maybe it, maybe it will be absolutely secure. As I say, the alliteration may not be to your cup of tea. I struggle with an alternative. We could have had be brotherly or be bonded. Not great. Be a bridge. The last one's good. That's be brilliant. Because we can shine wherever we are. We're not brilliant in ourselves, but Jesus lives in us and he can shine through us if we're receptive to him. Let's pray. Lord, there's just so much to, to learn about being your people. But Lord, help us to really just focus on cultivating community, building good relationships amongst your people. Help us to have a heart for those who are, are lost and who are needed, in need of hearing your word. Help us to be that bridge, that royal priesthood between God and man. And help us to be, to be bold, to be seen, to be your light in the world. We can't do it on of ourselves. We can as you work through us. Help us to follow you and to be effective in being your chosen people. In Jesus' name, amen.